Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast. Hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder. And me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Our mission is to use laughter and conversation to inform and inspire. For us, self-care and advocacy go hand in hand. We want you to be your best you so together we can build more inclusive communities. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tamarindo. How's it going, Anna Sheila? How are you? Hi, pues. I'm recovering from a from a from a cruda. <laughs> I'm definitely hungover today. Yes. <laughs> what did you do last night? ¿En qué te metiste? Well, last night was um, like the official pride in Mexico. I went to a, a drag. It was like a party, pero también tenían como drag performances, and it was amazing. I feel like I've been waiting like a year and a half to like party and celebrate and just like be around I mean all types of people but especially queer people just like having fun you know it was it was beautiful it felt like a release and I think um what was extra special about it is that like I've never been to a Mexican like drag performance entonces how what tell me what's different what stood out what stood out was just that the performances were you know like Mexican Mexican cultural, like, you know, Mexican singers from, from, from back in the day. And don't says they had Juan. Oh, so no, no one's taking you the new Jalisco here in Los Angeles, huh? That no, must be no, no. an opportunity. I got to take you to new Jalisco. Okay. If it still exists okay, okay. after the pandemic, cause you'll definitely see all of that. No, there. I, would, I would love that because it felt really special. And, you know, so they had Alejandra Guzman and just like everybody knowing all the words and Juan Gabriel and like some other singers. It was, it was just so, so much fun. And so actually I want to give my matraca to Mexican drag shows because it was definitely on a whole nother level. And it was, I, yeah, so much joy. Yes. Well, unfortunately for me, I had um, the precise opposite of that. I the very first event that I wanted to attend post COVID was going to be the uh, a club called Ronda, which is a phenomenal club here in Los Angeles, different locations, but it's definitely a very gay friendly event. And so I was so looking forward to going to a club called Ronda yesterday, but I just came back from Mexico and the only club that I went is to Club Sheets. <laughs> club Sheets and Club Toilet because I was extremely sick yesterday. Um, I think I delayed Moctezuma's revenge. So unfortunately for me, uh, I, I, I join you in feeling la cruda, but for me it's because of some virus. <laughs> We're both feeling shitty for very different reasons. Um, mine was of my own doing and yours was, was not, well, at least not on purpose. <laughs> well, I know. At least we're doing a little bit better. Tell me, I know, I know we got to spend a little bit of time together in Mexico, but since since then, you got to visit a, a cool part of Mexico that I've never been to, Querétaro. Tell me about that place. It looks so beautiful in your pictures. It's beautiful, and it's where my dad's family's from. He's from Mexico City, but it's where my family's from. So it feels como que, like, even more like going home. And um, he, he, he loves spending time in a little pueblito. And so we actually planted a, a tree there after he passed you know we put his ashes there so I, I it's like it's como que he's there you know it's, it's how it feels for us so we finally got to go as a family like my brother and his family now because last time we were in Mexico he didn't have a he didn't have a baby so he came with the baby and his wife and my mom and it's a tradition we wanted to to create and unfortunately we couldn't do it sooner because of COVID so we finally got to do it spend time with him And then my uncle um, ordered a, a bench. So we'll have a bench. So next time we go, 
um, we can sit at the bench and, and, and spend time with him. So it's very beautiful. Um, uh, Querétaro, so it's, it's a very historical um, place because um, it was definitely like part of the, the, the revolution. So it, there's a lot of history there. So we got to learn about that. Uh, yeah, so it's it a beautiful, beautiful experience for me and my family, for sure. That's really wonderful. And it's also, you know, it was Father, Father's Day yeah. um, around that time. So I'm glad you all, you all had the opportunity to celebrate in that way. Yeah. Well, since you and I last hung out, what I did uh, is also kind of in uh, recognizing Father's Day. And the fact that I have a podcast and I have the equipment to do so, I decided to interview my grandpa, who's 90. But yeah, it was super cool. I actually only got to ask him one question, but that opened up all, <laughs> a whole lot. So I can't wait to go back to Mexico and ask him for a couple for a couple follow-up questions. I'll, I'm definitely going to go back for Christmas, but um, I'm really grateful that I got to do that. I know that a lot of people, I know I've always wanted, like I had the intention and like he's the last grandpa left, you know, so I was like, I better do it. So I'm glad that I was able to ask him a couple questions and I, and I suggest that to anyone that is with, with older people just to ask them. And, and I, I actually Googled, you know, like questions to ask your dad. And there were some really good questions. Like the only question I asked him is, has your concept of what it means to be a, a man changed? over time that's all I asked him and then it just opened up a huge uh, flood of of, uh, conversation but just wanted to update you on some of the other stuff that I was doing yeah beautiful well is there anything that you would want to share like anything that stood out that you'd want to share just quickly right now or we can also save it for for a future episode well he kind of told me he kind of I feel like he swore me to secrecy actually (laughs) So although it was it was a great conversation, he it did it did sound like at the end he wanted to make sure it was just between me and him. So I'm gonna leave you in suspense. Okay, okay, okay. But the only thing I could say is that uh, I think it's a good exercise, and if folks could do it, to, to give it a try. It's so cool that we both, in our own way, got to connect uh, with our roots in the last um, few weeks. Yes, yes. Okay, well, uh, we're gonna. That was us catching up, our que pasa here, but we're going to dive right into our interview today. Um, you know, one of the beautiful things about building this online community with Tamarindo is that we get to sort of expand our universe uh, on of the people that we get to meet that are just doing amazing things with their platform, with, with the way that they're being activists, the way that they're changing conversations, push, pushing narrative. And this is what I think about when I think about the guests that we had, to, uh, we have for today, the guests that we have for today. So today we're speaking to Adi Mendiola Barreto, whose pronouns are he, they, a second generation Mexican and Puerto Rican trans and non-binary speaker and strategist that is balancing vulnerability, authenticity, data, and reality to help challenge and shape people's perspective on LGBTQ plus issues. I mean, that right there speaks our language, right? I think there's a lot of things that Adi is doing with his platform to change the narrative, and it's it's really about pushing conversations and building more inclusive communities, and that's exactly what we're, what we're all about here on Tamarindo. So one of the other cool things that we get to do because of co- COVID, right? Sometimes there's a lot of things that we that we a lot of regrets that we have because of COVID. But one positive outcome for COVID is that it's really allowed us to speak to people, not just in Los Angeles, right? We could do these virtual interviews. So Adi joined us from Chicago and had this a really insightful conversation. There's really a lot to think about. Uh, we talked a little bit about colorism. We talked uh, a lot about opportunities within Pride to build more inclusive communities. And somebody with a lot of insight and, and is going to leave you with a lot of food for thought. So we're going to go ahead and dive right into our conversation with Adi. Hello, uh, 
Um, so excited to welcome Adi to Tamarindo. How are you doing today, Adi? Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm doing well. I've got some coffee in. I feel excited. <laughs> Yes, yes, I also have my coffee in. Well, thank you so much for being here. So I thought that what we could do before we get started, I'd love listeners to know a little bit more about you and your work. And I, I think a nice way to frame this is to have you maybe tell us your why. You know, why do you do what you do? Yeah, so for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Ari Mendiola Barreto. I use they or he pronoun. I'm second generation Mexican and Puerto Rican. I'm also non-binary and transgender. Um, I'm a performer speaker, advisor, consultant, strategist. And so really what that means is that I help organizations really look at the ways that they may be operating or their intentions and align them with their impact and close that gap. So whether that is trans inclusion work, whether that is allyship work, whether that is representation, that's all of what I do and why I do it. Um, I'll tell you, it's actually pretty selfishly <laughs> because <laughs> I, um, so badly realized that, and I so badly desired a world that I wanted to live in. And I saw the gap and I realized that I had a really unique opportunity between, you know, public speaking for 15 plus years now. Um, and some of, you know, my own background in communications, whether that was crisis communications, tech or employer branding, that I had the opportunity to be a bridge for different groups of people to better understand one another, better understand themselves so that way they could show up a little bit differently. I love that. Yeah, that that's that's really my my heart in it. <laughs> We, we love that on Tamarindo. We think that's very, very aligned. And we're just so, so thrilled that you, you're joining us today. And I think as someone that's such a wonderful speaker, um, we've, we've observed some of the very thoughtful conversations that you've had on your platform, on, mostly on Instagram, is where, you know, the, the space that we engage with you. Um, mm -hmm. But now on this, on this podcast, which we're so honored to have you here. But, but you've had some really thoughtful conversations about race and, and, and identity, of course. And so that's sort of the, the focus focus of today. And I thought that a good starting off point would be maybe reflecting a little bit on the most recent conversations that is happening on this in the space where these conversations happen, which is often, you know, Twitter and the internet. So a week, few weeks ago, we had the release of the movie In the Heights, and it's the movie adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical by the same name, and it reignited conversations about colorism in the Latinx community. The film is based in a Dominican neighborhood, and it was criticized for its lack of black and dark skin lead roles. And now I myself was super excited to see the, the film. I, I was celebrating it as a win for Latinx representation, but then I was quickly, and so were a lot of people, quickly it, it turned into a time for inner reflection, including by Lynn manuel who, who described the project as feeling extractive um, when uh, he responded to the criticism about the lack of, of dark skin and black representation. Now, we don't get it, need to get into the film specifically, but I think it's a really good jumping off point as folks are thinking about colorism and are, are starting to accept and acknowledge their complicity in it. So maybe we could start there. Is it even fair to say that folks are starting to accept and acknowledge their complicity in colorism? You know, what, what are some of your thoughts on this? The most truthful and, and, you know, most integral or like what I can answer for my integrity is that 
I feel really unqualified to talk about colorism in the Latine community, mainly because I am mixed and I am light skin. I'm, I'm white in that I'm racially ambiguous. People, if I didn't say Barreto, if I didn't say Mendiola, people wouldn't necessarily know that I was Latinx. And, um, you know, there's a, she calls herself the black Puerto Rican PhD. Her name is Rosa Alicia Clemente. And, um, she talks about people who are light skinned like me, white passing, whatever language you want to use here as the white minority elite. And I think it's so, so important to start with people whose experiences of colorism that are actually, they're having a a racist or discriminatory experience. And so I say I'm unqualified for it because I've never experienced colorism. And if I sat here and said, yes, because Lynn and Rita said, sorry, and that they were apologetic. And, um, now that they're going to do better commitment to doing better then poof, it's gone. And it's in, it can be incredibly harmful, dare I say, gaslighting for a white face to deny or reject Afro-Latinas or Afro-Latinx, Af- um, Afro-Indigenous, Black and brown people's experiences. As something similar is if a cis person, a cisgender person, somebody who is not trans, said to me on a podcast or somewhere um, that I was listening into that transphobia is done, right? Or at least people are starting to be less transphobic just because now people are putting their uh, pronouns in their signatures or pronouns in their bios when the reality for trans. Um, women, trans men, gender nonconforming, gender queer people is that we're getting targeted not only by legislation at an astronomical rate, but also by direct violence. 2021 is going to be the most violent year of our history so far for trans people being murdered. And so as much as I want to say or believe that colorism is vanishing because now we have white faces that are willing to acknowledge the ways in which they've been complicit in things like representation in things like Hollywood. It would be so, so harmful if I said as somebody who has never experienced colorism, that I think people are getting it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I appreciate, first of all, educating us about the awful fact that this is a very violent year against trans people this year. That That is alarming. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit in a, in a moment. I think it's, it, and I'm glad that we're talking about this. Um, and I, I really appreciate you saying that like as someone who hasn't experienced racism and I uh, I share it with you the way I present in the world as a white person you know that's mm-hmm. what I that's how I present or as someone that at least gets people get confused about what kind totally. of racist they should be to me but and I wanted to talk about that because you know I think a lot of people that share the way we navigate in this world with this beige skin right mm-hmm. um, often will I have observed and especially with this in the heights situation this sort of centering of like well no I can't I can't possibly be racist because people in my community are, are of all colors or you know I so there's this this notion of sort of like the automatic is to get defensive and center self so I kind of want to put a pin on that and I'm going to um, bring up something and then let's maybe we could kind of go back to that that thought 
So I just recently spent some time in, in Mexico City uh, with Ana Sheila. So we spent some time in Mexico City. And you probably have experienced this when you travel. Sometimes when you travel, the algorithm feeds you what's going on locally, right? <laughs> so it turns out that in Mexico City at the time last week, there was a... Um, what was trending <laughs> was a Harvard academic named Viridiana Rios who posted an infographic with the heading El Privilegio de Ser Whitesican, right? The privilege of being Whitesican. The graphic includes data from a 2019 Oxfam. Mexico report showing how light skin and white Mexicans benefit from their from higher wages, greater educational opportunities, and better jobs. We posted that same graphic um, on our channel on, on Tamarindo's Instagram, and it generated a lot of comments, mostly from people agreeing with the notion that white privilege exists totally. and acknowledging that colorism and racism exists in in Mexico. Um, not surprisingly, though, there's also there was also an AJ Plus article showing that some Mexicans, and you could probably imagine what. Kind of Mexicans find the term white again to be itself racist and divisive. And so they're centering their own feelings rather than focusing on the real issues raised by the Ox Oxfam report. So I want to share this recent anecdote because it seems that even countries outside of the U.S. are having this moment, moment of reckoning as it relates to race. But also, like in the U.S., there are those that view these conversations as divisive. Mm -hmm. And it's you know really not unlike what's happening here in the U.S. around critical race theory. So I would love to get your thoughts on this notion of, of centering self and, and, and how that gets in the way of the real progress when it comes to our, our goal or effort, or at least the goal that we we have here on Tamarindo to build more inclusive spaces. So how does centering self get in the way of that? I think it absolutely does. I think that in any movement spaces, whether you're, you know, fighting across borders, whether you are, you're fighting for undocumented folks to have rights here in the United States, whether you're fighting for disability, um, whether whatever it might be, whatever cause, food sovereignty, et cetera, whatever cause that you're committed to, I think that there fundamentally has to be a divestment of self. I talk about this all of the time in my work, whether it's about allyship or wealth redistribution, is that it's not natural as a human race to be so fixated on self. And why do I say that? Well, there's actually uh, an anthropologist, Margaret Mead, um, in the 50s and 60s, who had uh, noted that the start of civilization as we now know it, homo sapiens, right? Just us as humans. <laughs> when we started, we actually used to die, like back in the day, we used to die because our femur bone broke. So we wouldn't be able to forage food or hunt or run from predators, etc. That was um, a death sentence. And the start of civilization, as we now know it, as she notes, started when we stopped dying from our femur bones because another human would help us. They would see that we were in pain and, you know, there's no allyship sticker. There's no hashtag BLM in your bio. There's none of that. It was just rooted from the right thing to do, seeing another human suffering. And I see this all the time. And even in the LGBTQ um, community in the queer community where, you know, bisexual women or men or queer men, gay men, um, queer women will often center themselves and say, well, what about me? What, what about my pain? And I often like to think about it, even like going to the hospital or the emergency room. A doctor will get many different types of patients into the emergency room and prioritizes them based on who is suffering and hurting the most. 
If you have somebody with a sprained wrist, right? And somebody who's bleeding out, the doctor is obviously going to choose the, the person who is bleeding out. It's as if in a waiting room, the person with the sprained wrist or the sprained ankle was like, Hey, Hey, what about me? What about, what about my, you know, what about my pain? That's such a great example. Such a great um, way to put it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that there's an opportunity for us to, to not root so much of our community and so much of our care in scarcity. What do I mean by scarcity? I mean, a, a fear that your needs will not be met. And I just want to like reassure anybody that's listening to this is that our entire, everything about how our society is designed is to remind you that you are in lack of, you are in lack of money. So you need to have a job. You are in lack of beauty. So you need all of these things. And so we're constantly desperate for our needs to be met in this way that is not true and hasn't been true for us as a civilization, as a, as a human race, that we have actually come very, very far away from the days that Margaret Mead was um, referring to where we were just caring for one another because it was the right thing to do. And so I am unsurprised that white Latinos or white Mexicans are upset or, um, that are like, Hey, this is, you know, reverse racism. And we have to be really engaged in, and in critical thinking and being able to be like, who gave us this idea that we are all one race in Mexico, but that changes somehow upon entry into the United States, right? Who, who gave us the idea that we're all mixed, that we all have African ancestry, that we all have indigenous ancestry. And that's why racism can exist. And who do those narratives actually support? Who do those stories actually help? Who do they uplift? And if we're not thinking about things critically, if we're not even thinking about the ways that we show up in conversations or in community, if we consistently consider ourselves, we are actually doing the very colonial, the very white thing, which is to not care about anybody but ourselves and our own self-interest. Thank you for that. We're gonna take a very quick break and then we are going to come right back with Ali. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, so we are we are back. So Adi, um, it's been a phenomenal conversation with you so far. I, I want to talk a little bit about Pride. You know, we're, we're we're in June. We're still celebrating LGBTQ plus community, and you know, we're about to wrap up the month. And as you reflect on on this time. Uh, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your reflections on Pride and, and maybe some ways that we collectively can, can do a better job of um, creating inclusive spaces for everyone? 
You know, I'll tell you, I actually have a pretty love hate relationship with pride as, uh, and I'm not um, the only one in the queer community who might feel this way because when I first came out many, many years ago, um, I found and ran to pride. I thought this was a great way to not only publicly be out and to be in community, though the more that I started learning about the commercial, the whitewashing, uh, excuse me, the, the rainbow washing and the whitewashing truly of truly, pride, yeah. I started to kind of detach myself from it. Um, it became something that I actually resented because I knew that people didn't care about my community, about the people that I was with every single day out of the year, but only pretended to at in the month. And so you know, as you know, I do uh, trans inclusion work. So I specifically will go into companies and help them foster and create more trans competent environments, workplaces, etc. And still to this day, my work is seasonal. I know right. that I will get the most amount of revenue or dollars when or people are expecting organizations to have a stance, to have a rainbow logo to show up in these ways, but all throughout the years might be actively contributing and donating millions and millions of dollars to anti, um, LGBTQ politicians as well as uh, who reinforce legislation. And so I think about it like today, there are 117 bills that are up for legislation in over 33 states here in the United States that are specifically targeting the trans community. And whether that is, you know, from participating in um, sports, whether that is bathrooms, and you know, if you're a human, bathrooms are kind of a thing that you need um, and having access to them is pretty important, I would argue. <laughs> um, but then things like healthcare. And so I urge people to start thinking, you know, pride is beautiful and people that are just coming out, like, I want you to celebrate. I want you to be exactly who you are. Also coming out is a very Western concept there. Um, and it's a very colonial concept because history shows us that at the same times that people were being executed in the British and Spanish empire for being homosexual, there were queer royalty in Uganda, in, in parts and countries in Africa, there was actually a, um, a queen who would make everybody call her king. And she had all male servants that would dress in women's clothing. And that was a very normal thing. And so I think, especially even in the Latine community and communities of colors, there's association that like, oh, well, homophobia and transphobia is rampant. And I actually told my Puerto Rican, you know, six, three dad, this the other day, I'm like, you know, being homophobic is among the whitest thing that you can do. And he yeah. looked at me and he was like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> right. Because it's the way that gender was weaponized, even, um, here in the United States that, um, specifically in slavery, right. You would never be able to be a white woman. You would never be able to amount to to that aesthetic. And we can talk about, you know, how capitalism and beauty standards all reinforce this. But I think one thing that I've been saying all throughout this entire month, I've been, as you, I've been talking endlessly about allyship and things that you can do. And of course there are things that you can do with 
something like pronouns, right? Where you can help try to destigmatize them, remove the shame or fear that trans people might have when sharing their pronouns as the data shows that we're unlikely in work settings or in other settings to actually tell people who we are because we're fearful of retaliation. And so you could share your pronouns in your bio or in your signature. And those are all nice and things that you could do tomorrow. But I think the one call that I'm asking for this month is I want cisgender people, people who are not trans, to really think about their own gender. And I asked my mother this, actually, my my, small Mexican mom, I said, who would you be without your gender? She was like, I'm sorry, what? And I, <laughs> and I was like, I, you know, I, what life would you have if I took away the fact that you were a woman? Who would you be? And she didn't answer me right away. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that she was like, you know, I would have gone to college because I had a full ride to go to school, but my dad didn't allow me because I was a woman. So I knew I would have gone to college. I knew I would have had access to different opportunities and traveled And all this was possible. And so I say that because LGBTQ inclusion, the work that I do for my job is not just for LGBTQ people. It's for everybody. Everybody is affected by things like the gender binary, right? We're constantly being reinforced that this is the way to be a woman or this is the way to be a man, not to be too sensitive, not to be too fill in the blank here too much. And we've all experienced that. We've all had pressure put on, on on us because of our bodies, expectations, even assumptions made about who we are, who we might partner with, the life that we might lead just because of our gender. And so the ask or the call that I have is actually introspective because I believe allyship in any form is deep introspective work. It is asking yourself, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to change about you? Knowing that parts of you, the way that you might be operating in the world might be hurting other people. What are you willing to change? What are you willing to sacrifice? And that starts at the misma. It starts internally. And so um, I would urge everybody if they want to take a little bit more of a, maybe a um, existential crisis on gender (laughs) or sexuality (laughs) is to ask themselves, what are the expectations that have been put on you? How would your life been different? What are the things that you've dreamed of or maybe pieces of you that you shied away from because it wasn't, it didn't fit nicely into the category of being a woman, man, or being a Latina or Latino as my, my, I, myself, you know, when I grew up, the expectation was to become Sofia Vergara, to have a small waist, to have hips, voluptuous lips. And so I have had such a deep relationship with my gender, my ethnicity, my culture, all sometimes being at odds. And so if you want to be an ally, the best thing that you can do is start internally. So much has come up as, as you were as you were speaking, but I'll just share this very, very brief anecdote that just happened literally an hour ago. Um, my, my husband is a cis, obviously cis straight white man. Um, and we we passed a billboard. I, I don't know if you've seen this show, Pen, uh, I guess it's Pen 15. Oh, it's hilarious. 
It's okay. hilarious. Well, it's this show, and uh, these comics reflect to being 13, and it's actually the actors are, are 35, but they're playing um, their middle school selves. And I was, it's hilarious. you got to go check it out, because it's really funny. Uh, but I, I was reflecting to being 13. I was like, gosh, I was such a mess at 13. It was so horrible. Like, and, I, and, I, and I asked Jeff, you know, he's like, not for me. And he's like, why was it hard for you? And I just, and I thought about it, and I was like, well, it's because... We, I had all this pressure to just like, as you described, to look like Sofia Vergara. And I was like, how come my boobs aren't here? Or like, why don't mm-hmm. I? It was, it consumed every moment of my day that I didn't look like the ideal woman, right? <laughs> That's yeah. what being 13 was like. Um, and he couldn't relate to that because obviously he didn't have those same pressures, right? So anyways, I think wonderful homework for all of us to do that inner reflection. Uh, we have just a little bit of time left, but I would love folks to know you do such tremendous work, but I, I especially would love to right now talk a little bit about this project committed to community. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, when the pandemic hit, most of my community are two-spirit, trans, intersex, um, black, indigenous, mixed people. And so um, who work in service or who work in and were worked in the service industry different industries. And I saw my communities collapse. And as as somebody who works in tech, who used to work in tech, actually, um, I saw other communities thriving. And so I felt a little bit kind of like the, the link between well-intentioned people who had a lot of resource and didn't know what to do with it. And people who were desperate, right. Undocumented families, farmers who needed, access and resource. And so, um, all in 2020, I had shifted. I actually stopped doing public speaking. I shifted all of my work to just fundraise for people to connect people, you know, the VP at visa to, um, who I had met at a conference to then Venmo, a family who was in desperate need. And so I started realizing very quickly about like eight months or so in that I couldn't do this alone and that I needed support. And so I thought, and I envisioned of a collective of really well-intentioned white affluent people who wanted to help, but didn't know who to help, didn't know which organizations to trust or what to do. And they had a resource and wanted to be in best relationship with it. And so, um, I started designing facilitations and curriculum keynotes, et cetera, to create a series. And I have, um, a cohort that I had started in uh, the late winter, early spring of this past year, um, to really start analyzing our relationship to money. Why was it that it needed to be an organization that we trusted? Why was it that we needed to have me, right. Be this, be the person to say, Oh, you can trust that this is truly an undocumented family who is starving and needs your support. And once we start to un undo, right. All of the scarcity, all of the fear, all of the expectation, all of the white supremacy culture, right? Um, the, the aspects of this, but then people would actually be able to redistribute their resources more regularly. And so I wanted, part of it was selfish and that I wanted support. Um, I didn't want to be the only person fundraising. And I realized that I couldn't just give people fundraisers thinking that their own internalized you know, everything would show up. And so I um, built this series and this facilitation. The next one that I'll actually be hosting is in September. 
Um, we're white people of all ethnicities. There's Latina people, there's mixed indigenous people who are white and are in tech, et cetera, that are in um, this cohort. That now we are unlearning all of the things that um, we have been taught about money, about giving, our relationship to giving, who we give to, so that way we can better show up for different movements. And I and I think about that pretty often, and you know, I even think about it as the first question that we talked about, right? Is that our movements, our activism, the way that we want to show up, the change that we want to make, I'll even say, the change that we want to make in the world, the things that we want to see cannot be dependent on systems that have been given to us. They can't be dependent on Hollywood, right? Because Hollywood was never designed for us to to, to be, right. you know, like, and have our full selves and have all of the things, all of our nuance be captured. It wasn't. And that's why we feel so desperate for representation because we're operating within the things that we are given. And so I want us, anybody who is listening to this to feel inspired, to create your own TV series, your own, whatever, or, um, you know, play <laughs> also your own communities of the things that you want to see changed in the world, because we can't have any of our time, any of our, our energy of the things that we want shifted in systems that weren't designed for us to begin with. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you, you've left us at least me and I'm sure all the listeners that are hearing this right now with a lot to reflect on. How can we support committed to community? If you follow me on social media, I'm starting to, you can follow me on Instagram. That's the app um, or my Patreon. It's just at Adi.Barreto or at Adi.Barreto, um, depending on the platform. But I will be putting out in August an application for people who are interested in unlearning their relationship to their own resources and money. And um, we'll start actually putting out different mutual aid flyers or GoFundMes, places that you can support. So I would say as a right now, you can follow me on social media and I'll have more resources and ways to get involved in this work um, coming in the next couple of weeks here. Thank you so much. Okay, fantastic. We all have our homework to do. We're going to support this and we just want to thank you so much for being here on Tamarindo. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Okay. Well, let's close out this episode with some matracas, basuras y calmas. Ana Sheila, do you want to start with your basura? So I'm putting in la basura men who hate on women's basketball. And so recently there was a Twitter post, a, t a tweet uh, with a video clip of one of the best WNBA players, you know, who had a really great move. And instead of comments being supportive, most of the comments came from men and most of them were very condescending and patronizing of just women's basketball period and things like not like this isn't a sport like just all types of terrible things and I feel like women's basketball especially gets the worst treatment from from men and I was reflecting on this and I think it's a combination of you know obviously misogyny but also racism because I think women's basketball is predominantly um, women of color And then also homophobia, because you see a lot of representation of LGBTQ plus members in, in women's basketball. And a lot of them don't have physiques that are maybe all the time, you know, like more desirable for men, I guess. And so it's just like, I feel like you see all those things at play. And it was just really tough to read those comments because they obviously were coming from 
like I said, homophobia, racism, and, and misogyny. So just basura to all the men who feel compelled to not only not watch women's basketball, but to say it's not a sport and all the other things they were saying in the comments. Basura to that. Basura to that. Yeah. Um, okay, what well, I don't have a very, I guess, basura to the fact that I was hugging my toilet for 24 plus hours and therefore did not come to this recording prepared <laughs> as I would have liked. Um, but I guess the only little basura that I could think about is just um, drinking soda at every single meal. And I, I mentioned this because I just came back from Mexico and I noticed that that's like the default. Like, ¿qué refresco quieres? Like, Everybody expects that you drink soda with every single meal. And, they, you know, that might be someone's personal choice. But I think when we're all informed and also now even more so, because in Mexico, every soda um, now t has a big old sign that says alto en azúcar, you know, high in, alto en calorías and, and high in calories. I just I, I hope that people would consider drinking water instead of soda for every single meal. So I guess basura to how much soda rains in Mexico today. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a calma for us today? Uh, I do. My calma is, it's funny because it, it, it starts in a basura. So the basura is that my phone was stolen <laughs> um, oh, a few yes. weeks ago. I was or a there. week ago, actually. I, was there. I know. So, so we were coming back from recording some awesome episodes with Soina Algona. Shout out to Soina Algona, Jose Richard Aviles. And in such a great mood. And then my phone got stolen in like, a matter of like two minutes. I don't even know how. Honestly, but matraca to the because <laughs> that person did magic. Magic. They really did. I, I shout out to them. They are skilled. <laughs> but anyways, I don't know how when when it happened. Like seriously, I, I don't know. Anyways, it's so terrible. Obviously, basura to that, and it was hard. Not really hard. Not having a phone. Obviously, not ideal because we also needed to communicate. But it actually brought me a lot of calma not having a phone for a few days. And I was with my family. So, you know, I wasn't on my phone and I realized like, it felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like I felt so much lighter not having a phone for a few days. And I just realized what, what a slave I am to. And I knew, knew that already, but it, it was very clear during this time that I didn't have a phone. Yeah. I want to find times to intentional times to do that more often because it was really nice. And yeah, it was it's just nice to, to feel a little bit lighter and not feel like a slave to my phone. So I'm my I'm going to keep working on this love hate relationship with my phone and, and creating more time to to be away from it. Yes, I think that's very good. It's good to be to be present in, in the moment because I've certainly been in situations where. I'm not fully present because I'm busy responding to someone's texts. Right. You know? So I think it's a good thing. And also, on the, I, obviously, it's not a good thing that your phone got stolen. That's awful. But I, am, I for one, am grateful <laughs> that you're going to have a brand new phone uh, that's ba whose battery is going to last more than 10 hours you know? <laughs> or more than six hours. Yes, I feel like <laughs> you might have helped manifest my phone getting stolen because you've been wanting me to get a new phone. And it was time. It was yes, time. <laughs> it was time. And honestly, time. <laughs> Tell me you're not your life is not changed by the battery life. It's amazing. It is it's a world of it's difference. It's amazing. It's a world of difference. It's amazing. <laughs> I got an iPhone 12 now, y'all. <laughs> Good. My calma goes to my loving family because they've been checking on me every five minutes to make sure that I'm hydrated, that I'm doing well. Jeff took me to urgent care this morning. We did establish that it was indeed just food poisoning, but, but it was awful. And, and uh, you know, and, and so it, my calma just to, to have my family check on me is it's really important. And I will throw in another matraca to us because we were just recently mentioned once again by Oprah Magazine. 
And uh, we just want to thank all of our listeners for your continued support. It's been a lot of work for us to get these episodes out weekly, even through sickness. So I hope that you share this episode with a friend, that you please write us a review, um, and or that you kick in a donation. We happily accept those at tamanindopodcast.com. So until the next one, bon tu suéter. Y cálmate, te calmo. See y'all soon. Bye. Tamarindo Podcast is part of Sonoro Media. It is hosted by Brenda Gonzalez and Ana Sheila Victorino. Producer Jeff provides original music and Michelle Andrade edits the show. Follow us on Instagram at Tamarindo Podcast and on Twitter at Tamarindo Cast. Support our show by sharing this episode with a friend, writing us a review on Apple Podcasts, or contributing financially to the show. All contributions, big or small, help us keep bringing you great conversations and free or low-cost events. To get in touch with us or to support us, please go to tamarindopodcast.com. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa. Eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI, FPEI, 220099